Well, I said this in the first, I'm going to say it again in the second, but uh, in case you don't know, this morning is the last Sunday we're going to have Jeff Hubbard with us leading worship. Um, Yeah, so I was, the whole morning I'm enjoying it and also sad at the same time that we're going to lose he and Nicole here for a while. If you don't know Jeff and his fiancee Nicole, they're about to get married in a couple of weeks uh, and then move to Connecticut where Jeff is going to be studying at Yale because he's a smarty pants. And uh, man, that kid, that guy is smart. But it's been such a joy to be at a church long enough to watch Jeff grow up. Jan Buck and I were reminiscing after first service that she taught his fourth grade Sunday school class on the names of God, and he said he still remembers those things. And here he is. He's been a man in our church, uh, faithfully ministering and leading us in worship. It's been awesome. And Nicole has been serving as a core group leader, and he and uh, she and Jeff kind of side by side have ministered in the grace group that they've been in. Uh, she has helped in Adventure Week, and, and she has really been the sort of college student here at Grace that we love who is not wasting any time or putting church involvement and membership on hold for college years, but she's served beautifully. So anyway, um, neither of them are here now to hear all that wonderful stuff, but if you see them this Sunday or the next Sunday, uh, thank them for the way they've served here at Grace and tell them you're going to miss them. Um, You know, that last song we were singing reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians. Oh, I put a bookmark. No, I didn't. Let me find it. Ephesians chapter 4, about one of the things that we're doing when we sing together as a church. That's not right. It's not Ephesians 4, is it? Just one second. Let me turn. Ah, Colossians is what I was going to read. He says, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Listen to this. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing. Do you ever think that's what we're doing in part when we're singing? Sometimes we're singing to God. We're addressing God. We're thanking him and and, and adoring him directly. Um, But some songs, like that last song we did, was a singing and admonishing and teaching one another with all wisdom through song. It's a come on, people of grace, song. Let's come let us welcome the work of the Spirit that's transforming us within Come on, Grace, let's keep dying to self and saying yes to God's will and let's daily follow him is what we just prayed together and and admonish one another in that song so beautifully. And it couldn't really have prepared us better for this passage in Titus we're going to be in this morning. Turn to Titus chapter 2. That's exactly what this is about. And I love this morning in our sung worship, it's helped orient us between the two great appearings of Jesus. If you think back to as we've been singing, we've been singing on one hand a lot about what Jesus came and did when he came and he died on the cross for us and we became justified by grace through faith, forgiven of our sin because of his finished work on the cross and now we are adopted as children of light. And so it's oriented us to that, but it's also these songs have been orienting us toward the future coming of Christ, the appearing that's talked about in this passage one day when he returns in glory to take his church to be with him forever. And we live between these two things. And as we're going to see in this passage in Titus, the Christian life in between these are to be shaped by each of them. So let's read Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is our text this morning, God's word for us. And that last verse gives me my instructions, I think, this morning, that these things in verses 11 through 14 I am to declare, we are to declare regularly to one another and they're not optional. He says, let no one disregard you based on these things. If you are a believer, these, this, this Christian life as he describes it is not a nice uh, add-on option for the Christian life. It's the essence of the Christian life that he's describing here. It's not to be disregarded. We are to pay close attention and to take this seriously. So let's go. Here, two main points here I want to frame based on the appearings of Jesus that Paul talks about that are each to shape the Christian life. First, he's going to say that the appearance of God, the grace of God that appeared at Jesus' first coming is to be training us, training us in the Christian life. And that the future glory of God that will appear one day, we are to be waiting for eagerly with eager expectation. And as, as we do both of those things, the salvation that Jesus gave himself to bring us will be made complete. So let's look at the first point. Trained by the grace of God that's appeared. Christian life is to be a life in training. Trained by the grace of God. Um, a couple of Read verse 11 here with me. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So two questions. One, it's a little weird to say that the grace of God appeared when Jesus came. I mean, we, sometimes maybe you've heard people say, well, yeah, the God of the Old Testament, he's the, the angry God. But thankfully in the New Testament, I like the New Testament because the God of the New Testament is kind and gracious. And that's not what Paul means here because God has always been gracious. It's a part of his very nature. In fact, God's gracious saving purposes to redeem sinners um, and redeem them to himself has been in his heart from before the foundations of the world. Look what he said to Timothy in a similar letter that he wrote to Timothy, kind of like this letter to Titus. Notice again, he's talking about the first appearing of Jesus and how it relates to this grace. He says, Jesus saved us. He called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And when did he have this purpose and grace? Well, this purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So this grace that appeared when Jesus came didn't, it wasn't non-existent before that. It was always in the heart of God and God was moving events toward this point. But then he says, now it has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And how was this grace manifested or brought to life? Well, he says, this is how it was manifested. He went to the cross and he abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news of what he did in his first coming. So that's what it means that the grace of God has appeared. It's always been in God's heart. But when Jesus came at the incarnation, it was finally the moment here where it was going to be accomplished. 
He offered his sinless life as a ransom. And he abolished death and he made a, a way for us to be with him forever. So then he says this grace of God has appeared and it's bringing salvation for all people. In what sense is Jesus' first coming, has it brought salvation for all people? Because Jesus himself said, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. So Paul can't be saying that all will just be saved. Everyone will just be saved automatically, whether they've heard of Jesus or not, whether they uh, turn from their sin and trust in Christ or not. No, he's not saying that. But I think what he's saying here is when Jesus came at the incarnation and when he went to the cross and he rose from the grave and he ascended, what he did there has brought salvation that now is offered to all people. It's all people are invited all people now are welcomed uh, to this good, this good news. We are to take this good news to the ends of the earth. That's the sense in which God has brought, Jesus has brought salvation for all people. Do you remember what the angel, uh, the angel said to the shepherds the night that Jesus was born? He said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? For all the people. At his first appearing, good news was about to, to come about for all people. And that's what Paul's saying here. The grace of God that appeared when Jesus came at first um, has brought salvation for all people. All are welcome now. And what's the good news of this salvation? How did he bring it? Look at verse 14 in our passage. Beautifully, succinctly sums up. Here is how Jesus came and brought salvation. He gave himself for us. It's so simple. He, the eternal son of God, exalted, omnipotent, sovereign, holy, righteous, stepped down like Kip reminded us last week and he took the form of a slave to serve us as a man. He became a man, fully man, and being found as a man, he went to the cross and he died for our sin. He gave himself for us. That's how the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation at Jesus' first coming. He gave himself for us. And what we see in these verses here is that the salvation that Jesus came to bring, this is really what I want us to get this morning, is much more than just pardon for sin, which is amazingly good. I'm so thankful that salvation includes pardon for sin. Without pardon for sin, we would have nothing, nothing else, nothing else good that comes along with our salvation. It's essential, but it's, oh, so much more than just forgiveness of our sin. It's also ransoming us from something, and it's ransoming us to something. And we see both of those stated twice here in this passage, in verse 12 and in verse 14. We need to think about the salvation that Jesus brings as we experience it, not as a single event, but like a marathon, which has a clear starting line. That moment, that, like Ephesians 2 describes, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God in his mercy made you alive together with Christ, and you turned from your sin initially to Christ for forgiveness of sin and for the Holy Spirit to, to invade your life, that was like the starting line. And we're gonna see in a little bit, there's a finish line. There's a day that Jesus is gonna return and make all things new and gather all of his adopted children to be with him forever. And he's gonna consummate or complete our salvation. But then there's this in-between. It's like, it's like a race. We call it sanctification. It's this process by which Jesus now by his spirit is working out the very things for which he saved us. 
that conversion was just the beginning of. And like a marathon, the Christian life, as we, as we run this race, step by step, every step I think simultaneously is a leaving behind of sin and a running toward Christ and righteousness, the life that he's redeemed us to, to enjoy. It's both. And we see it here. Look in verse 14. What did Jesus give himself to save us from? Well, he says he gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness. I want us to think about lawlessness. I think lawlessness, that word, that idea really captures the essence of our sin nature. Our sin nature tells us lawlessness is freedom. Do you know what I mean? It whispers to us in moments, laws are prison. Laws are shackles. Laws are restrictive and confining. Laws are joy-stealing. Real freedom is to be out from under God, out from under his law and his ways, and free to call your own shots and to live your own truth. That's lawlessness. And we were reading in Judges this week, if you've been reading in our Take Up Your Sword reading, and twice we read this sentence about the state of things in Israel in those days, and it captures, I think, the very heart of lawlessness. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone just did what was right in his own eyes, in her own eyes. And if that doesn't describe the spirit of our age, what does, right? That's, that's our world too, right? Just, you just do you. You just live your truth. No one knows more than you do what will truly make you happy, what will truly make you fulfilled, what will make your life a life worth living. No one knows better than you. That's, that's what our age says as well. That's what our sin nature whispers to us, that lawlessness is the way to life, to be your own, to sit on the throne of your own life. But the book of Proverbs twice tells us, well, there is a way that seems right to a man. But its way leads to the end is the way to death. But God's way leads to life. And so we need to understand that lawlessness isn't freedom. It's a dungeon. It's a mirage. It's a lie. That if I'm, I call the shots, my life will be best. No. True freedom comes uh, when we're redeemed um, to do whatever's right in God's eyes. That's real life. Set free from our bondage to sin, the power it has over us, and given the spirit and enabled now to to run in the ways that God calls us to run and to live according to his will. That's freedom. Real freedom comes when we abdicate the throne of our life and we swear our allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And this is what Jesus gave himself to redeem us from, lawlessness. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism is a wonderful collection of questions and answers to help teach young and old just the truths of our Christian faith. And I went back to it this week and was reading a couple of questions as it talks about conversion, when we first trust, turn and trust Christ and, and we first are saved, and then what is the life that follows? And, and first, it defines conversion like this. It's the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. That's what happens when we're made alive together with Christ. Initially, something in us dies and something in us comes to life. God brings to life. But then the next two questions, the next question is this. So what is the dying of the old nature? Listen how it it explains this from the Bible. It is to grieve 
with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin. And more and more, that's progression language, more and more to hate it and flee from it. So notice what happens when salvation first comes to us and we get it. There's a heart change and we see our sin differently. Now we realize my sin is a personal offense to a holy, gracious creator God who made me and has good plans for me and who I've given the the stiff arm to. And it grieves us. And not only does it grieve us, but that grief then leads us to hate sin and what it does, what it does toward God and what it has done in our lives and make us want to flee from it and to be free of it. That's what Paul's talking about here. He redeemed us from lawlessness. He gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness. Salvation, um, if you understand salvation merely as escape from the consequences of your sin, you've missed the point. You understand an incomplete salvation that Jesus died to bring. Or let me put it more bluntly. If you are more than happy to be forgiven of the wages of your sin, but if honestly you have little or no concern to actually be free of sin and to live a life that pleases God, chances are you have not received this salvation, that you don't understand this salvation. It's not just fire insurance. It's so much more. It's being redeemed from lawlessness and the prison of it. And Jesus gave himself to save us from that. But renouncing bad works, redeemed from lawlessness, is is only half of the salvation Paul says Jesus gave himself to bring. The other half is the, the last part of verse 14. He also gave himself to purify us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are now zealous for good works. So think about it like this. Here's the parallel. If, if lawlessness is living as a person for my own possession, I'm in charge. Well, then the opposite of that is to become a people for his own possession who submit ourselves to his rule and his authority and his guidance and his leadership and his care. God's grace is training us to renounce good works and to love and eagerly pursue good works. Um, Let me give you an example of this, how the opposite of lawlessness isn't just not breaking laws. Ephesians 4.28, Paul says uh, to those who steal, he says, let the thief no longer steal. So that's an example of, I want you to renounce that ungodliness. I want to redeem you from that ungodliness. So that the thief no longer steal. Notice what the opposite is. But rather, let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice that the opposite of stealing isn't don't steal. The opposite of steal is way better than that. The opposite of steal in Paul's eyes is work hard so that you have the means to generously care for people who are really in need, who once were like you, maybe leading you to steal. It's so much more than just not breaking laws anymore. The opposite of lawlessness is zealous for good works. That's the idea here. Paul actually uses the noun that we're to be a people for his own possession, zealots, zealots for good work, enthusiasts for good works. Let me ask you honestly, is that how you always feel about good works? I'm zealous for them. I'm zealous to renounce ungodliness and I'm zealous for good works. If I'm honest, that's not always my heart. Renouncing lawlessness frequently feels like a loss doesn't it? There's something about lawlessness that we like. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to be set free from it. 
And good works often come with a cost, don't they? Good works often require us to humble ourselves or put others' needs before our own or even risk being treated unfairly. Good works are not always easy works. So we might not always feel zealous for good works. You know, I was thinking, I've talked about this before, but 2012, Scott Rosencrantz invited Brian McDerris and I to run a half marathon. And uh, when I first said yes, I couldn't believe it. Then I asked Brian McDerris on the phone and he said no. And then his wife laughed at the idea and he said, it's on. (laughs) Isn't that how that happened? And the rest is history. He's been a runner ever since. But anyway, so as we were training, um, you get to a point where you need to start at least once a week doing longer and longer runs to build up to this ridiculously long race that you're going to run. And so Scott and Brian and I started meeting at 6 a.m. on Saturday mornings at the Fullerton Courthouse to to go run, to keep each other accountable to do those long runs that we didn't want to do. And we started inviting a few other guys from Grace to come and join us. And it started growing. We're like, oh, we kind of have started our own little running club here. And I think it needs a name. And Scott suggested the name that we immediately knew this is the name for us. We are the I Hate Running Running Club. (laughs) And it it very accurately captures how I feel about running. Um, I have to be honest, there are rare occasions where I have been running and really enjoyed while I was running. But for the most part, my favorite part of running is the moment that it's over. And I start catching my breath and I feel like, okay, that was good for my body. Or sometimes it was too far. I'm like, that was not good for my body, (laughs) my 47-year-old body. But I run because I like to eat. All right? How many in here, you exercise, you run? because I like to eat. And I'm getting older. My metabolism is is going downhill fast. And I want to be strong and healthy for my kids and my family. And so I run for those reasons. I'm not zealous for running. Why am I saying this? Here's it. Jesus did not give himself to make you members of the I Hate Sanctification Sanctification Club. (laughs) But be honest, because we can feel that way. Well, about good works. Well, you know, we do these good works because we're supposed to. It's the good thing to do. And we turn from sin because we're not supposed to do those things. But secretly, still kind of like to. And I'd, I'd rather not work hard at this if it were up to me. But Paul's saying, no, Jesus died and gave himself to redeem you from lawlessness and to purify you, to make you more and more a people who are zealous for good works. I love sanctification, sanctification club. Look at what Heidelberg says about this side of the coin. He says, well, so what is the coming to life of the new nature? It's a heartfelt joy in God through Christ. That's a new attitude toward God now that comes. It's a joy in the grace that we've received and an awe and a wonder that God would treat us this way. While we were sinners, he would give his precious son for us. And this joy then grows and it becomes a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. First John says his commands no longer are seen as burdensome to us, but a joy. I wish the Heidelberg, I know this is going to sound a little bit arrogant to suggest the Heidelberg should change the wording a little bit, but I would have loved if they kept the more and more from the last question answer in this one as well, because I think not only do we grow by degrees more and more to hate sin and flee from it, but we also grow by degrees more and more in our love and delight to live according to his will in all good works, Right? Because in all good works, um, we, don't, we, don't, we don't love and delight all good works, but that's where he's moving us, I think. So this is the salvation Jesus gave himself to bring. 
to redeem us from lawlessness um, and to, uh, to, to make us zealous for good works, to a people for his own possession, to purify us. And how is he doing this? Look at verse 12. Well, the grace of God that appeared when Jesus came didn't disappear when he ascended. But now that grace is training us in this present age. Do you see the language? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us now in the present age to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Notice here, the grace of God is training us to do what Jesus redeemed us for. Don't miss the parallel to, chapter four, or to verse 14 that we just read. And this word training, I think, tells us a few things about sanctification. It reminds us it's a process. It doesn't all happen at conversion. I think conversion and regeneration when God makes us alive is like admission into the school of grace. The life that is marked by training, being trained by grace. Training also reminds us that this doesn't come naturally to us, this leaving behind sin and this running in God's ways and loving his works. It doesn't come naturally to us, and so we're going to grow in it, and we're going to learn by degrees. He is training us. There's going to be a progression. And I think it also reminds us that the Christian life, there is to be a serious, not, not uh, somber, not lacking joy, but a serious, earnest, active focused, how many words can I pile up? Deliberateness about the Christian life. The Christian life isn't a coasting life. It's a pedaling life. Right, Wally? It's a pedaling life. Wally's biked in his life the equivalent of how many times around the world? Four. <laughs> yes, it's not a coasting life. You don't do that coasting. You do that pedaling. The Christian life is a peddling life. We're in training. God, Jesus is bringing us from one place to another here. So what is the grace of God training us to do? Well, again, it parallels verse 14. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So the training to renounce ungodliness is how Jesus, by his grace, is redeeming us in this age from lawlessness. And training us to live godly lives is how he purifies us to be a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. As we then engage ourselves by renouncing and living. Renounce is a strong word. It's a word of conviction. It's a word of saying no and turning from and declaring a formal abandonment of something. When someone renounces their citizenship, they say, I am no longer a citizen of that country anymore. I am now a citizen of this country. That is no longer who I am. This is who I am. It's a renounce. It's a strong word. And he says we're to renounce ungodliness. That means as we see our character and conduct Contrary to the character and conduct of God, we say no to that. We renounce that. We say, that is not who Jesus has saved me to be. That is not who God is purifying me to be. And we renounce it. We reject it. We turn from it. We keep leaving it behind. And we don't do it once. I think this is the daily step-by-step running of the Christian life, the race of the Christian life. Daily, like we sang in the song, um, Spirit, give us ears to listen. Uh, Loving truth, hating sin, turning from what holds us captive. Work a holiness within. And we get up tomorrow and we ask the same thing. God, help turn me from what holds me captive. Work a holiness within. Renouncing is the turning from The grace of God isn't training us to justify our sin. 
The grace of God isn't training us to minimize or turn a blind eye to our sin or ignore our sin. The grace of God isn't training us to just have a sort of Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven attitude. And what are you going to do that basically gives a lot of our sin just a pass? And well, we're sinners and one day Jesus is going to fix all that. And so I'm not going to care too much about it. That's not what grace is training us to do. And it's certainly not training us to cozy up to or nibble around the edges of sin and to get as close to it as we can without just fully diving back into it. It's training us to decisively renounce it day after day. We need to help one another with that. I don't want to belabor this point. I actually want to stop right now and give us a minute to be quiet and pray about this. This passage is calling us to to do this, to renounce, to take, to, to take stock of our lives right now. I want you to bow for a minute and pray. What, what are things that still hold you captive that this, today you need to turn from those things again, afresh, and say, God, help me. Work a holiness within here. Give me ears to hear and a heart to follow. Where, where are you still hating truth and loving sin? Renounce these things to God right now as he brings them to mind. Ask him to help you see sin that you don't see that you need to renounce. Let's pray. Just quietly where you're sitting. Jesus, thank you for giving yourself, yourself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and, and to f- for filling us with your spirit that enables us now to, to renounce sin, to turn from it. Lord, I pray you'd help us this morning uh, to die to ourselves, say yes to your will, and daily keep following you. Lord, give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's the first half of the equation is the renouncing. He also says we are to live, we're trained by grace to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. In other words, we're be, he's training, grace is training us to be zealous for good works and to walk in them. So we're to be zealous for, to give generously as God has given generously to us. We're to be zealous to serve others. We're to be zealous to show fairness and to seek justice in our world for others. We're to be zealous about being peacemakers in our own homes with other people in the church, with the world. We're to be zealous to grow in Christ-like character. We're to to, to want to grow, to, to resemble our Heavenly Father more and more. We're to be zealous. Grace is training us to be zealous to proclaim Christ and to not be timid or ashamed of the gospel, to be bold and fearless and, and vocal and make God's glory known. God's grace is training us to exercise our spiritual gifts for the sake of building up the body of Christ that we might all be a people purified for his own possession. Grace is training us to be zealous to be lights in our workplace and lights in our family and lights in our neighborhoods. And how does the grace of God that has appeared train us? Last part of this first point. 
I think the Lord's Supper that we're about to observe in just a few minutes is a great reminder of how grace that appeared when Jesus came now in the present is actively training us. When Jesus gave us this this observance, he held up the cup with his disciples of wine at the table and he said, this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is a reminder that when you come and receive me, Jesus is saying, God invites you into a new covenant arrangement with him, a new relational agreement with him that is based on the foundation of his finished work at the cross and it comes with great blessings. And one of the blessings both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the prophets, spoke of in advance. Jeremiah said about this covenant that God would one day make when Messiah comes, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. This law that up until this point was only external and only showed us how miserable, fa- miserably we fail to be able to uphold this law externally. But now he says, one day I'm gonna have a new arrangement. I'm gonna put my law within you and I'll write it on your hearts and I will be your God and you will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. So you see, we get pardon for sin and we get power over sin. As God writes his laws on his heart, well, how does he do that? Well, Ezekiel says something similar. He says about this covenant, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. What's the key word there? Clean, right? This is what Paul's talking about to Titus. He's, he's going to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And he says, here's how I'll do it. I will give you a new heart. I'll give you a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone, that lawless heart, from your flesh. And I'll give you a heart of flesh, a feeling heart, a heart that has now new affections for God and for his will. And he says, and I'll put my spirit within you. I will indwell you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people. I will be your God. Again, that's what Titus is talking about, being a people for God's own possession. And his grace comes to us now from within. Like we said, work a holiness within. One last place I want to point to, and at the end of the book of Hebrews, there's this beautiful benediction that we're going to sing at the end of the service, a a paraphrase of it. But notice again, embedded in this benediction prayer is a prayer that God would continue to train us by the grace that appeared when Jesus came. Notice, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, that's his first appearing, by the blood of that eternal covenant, now, today, equip you, Enable you with everything good so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. As another pastor put it, so grace isn't just leniency uh, for sin, it's power not to sin. It's power and not just pardon. That's what I want us to see this morning. That's what Paul wanted Titus to exhort and, and not be disregarded that the salvation Jesus came to bring, we're being trained in this now and he is bringing about day by day in our lives by his spirit. So the grace of God that appeared is training us for this salvation and bringing it. But I also think that, that the glory of God that's gonna appear, look at verse 13, 
is shaping us in the Christian life as well. As we, he says, wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The Christian life is also a waiting life. It's an in-training life, and it's also an eager waiting life. I don't know if you've ever seen this bumper sticker. I haven't seen it for a while. I I saw it years ago. I've seen it on T-shirts too. Jesus is coming back. Look busy. It's it's very snarky. It's a very um, cynical and sad misunderstanding of the promise of Jesus' second coming. As if Jesus' second coming is just God, the divine undercover boss, showing up unannounced to catch us all sleeping or dozing on the job, right? That's not at all the waiting that defines the Christian life. It's an eager waiting. We are waiting, he says, for our blessed hope, which is redundant if you think about it. The word hope already is something we anticipate in the future that's happy and good and blessed that we long for, right? We have another word for future things we anticipate that aren't good. It's called dread. But he piles up blessed hope. We're waiting for our blessed hope to remind us what a great hope this is that we're waiting for. The future blessed hope is so great that it can even cause us to rejoice before we have it. I've shared this before, but I love this. Emmanuel Church in Nashville has what they call the Emmanuel Mantra. And it's just a simple way that they wrote to try to remember and to be able to share the the core of the good news of the gospel. And it's three points. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anyone can get in on this. I love that. I've heard Ray Orland sort of unpack that and say, I'm a complete idiot. At no time in my life has God ever looked down on me and said, oh, impressive. (laughs) Not one time. But the good news is that because of Jesus' first coming, we can be invited into a grace that offers us an incredibly bright future and anyone can get in on it because it's by grace. Our future is incredibly bright in Christ. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming. We're going to see him as he is. You know, two other times in this letter, in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, and 3, verse 7, he talks about the hope of the Christian life. And in both those places, he says it's a hope of eternal life, which it is. But here he says our great hope, our blessed hope, is the hope that we will see the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we put these together, I think we need to understand that what will make this eternal life such a blessed hope to one day become sight and our experience is because we will see God. We will see a glory that we have never seen anything comparable to, and we'll see it forever, and we'll be with him forever. And so even though there's all sorts of other happy hopes that come with Jesus' second coming, our blessed hope is not primarily that death will be abolished, although that's a really happy hope, isn't it? Our primary blessed hope is not that all suffering and sorrow and brokenness will one day be so far in the rearview mirror that we'll look back and say, were those ever things? That is a happy hope. It's part of our happy hope. And it's not primarily that we will be reunited with our loved ones in Christ, which is a very precious and sweet hope. It's primarily that we will see God. It's going to make all those other blessings of our great hope all the sweeter, that we'll see God together, we'll be with him together. 
our salvation will be complete. And as we finish here, I just want us to see how that future blessed hope that isn't ours yet, but it's so great that it can cause us to rejoice and it can even reach back into our present and pull us forward away from sin and into righteousness. Look at this from 1 John. 1 John 3, verse 2. No, that's not it. Can you help me out, June? I probably pushed the wrong button there. Do you have that slide? Oh, no, you don't. That's totally my mistake. I'm just going to read it to you. (laughs) John says this, Beloved, we're God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. It's part of the blessed home. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. So that's our future hope. But notice what happens. And everyone who thus hopes in him, that's what we're doing in the present age. Everyone who eagerly awaits that day and puts their hope in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see the relationship? That the eager waiting invades our present day and it purifies us as we earnestly await what is it going to be like when we finally see Jesus face to face and we are like him. We are without sin completely forever that we've definitively 100% renounced sin for eternity and we are all in for God. And in that day, we're eagerly awaiting it. It makes us want to start getting going right now, to be purified and move in that direction right now. So that's, that's our, our, our word this morning, Grace. We want to be a people who are shaped by these two appearings of Jesus, shaped by the grace that's now ours because of Je- what Jesus did when he first came and pulled forward um, with hope for our blessed hope. And we're going to finish this service by taking the Lord's Supper, which is a beautiful way of putting an exclamation point on this passage, I think, because Jesus instructed us as the church to do this frequently as we gather together until the day he returns and appears in his glory. It's part of our training process. This is part of our training regimen, is to remember through these two elements what Jesus did at his first coming. And so I want you this morning, in a minute, when you come forward and, this, and you take a piece of the bread and the server is going to look at you and say, Christ's body was given for you. I want that to remind you of two things. I want it to remind you, one, that he gave himself for you, his body for you, to buy your pardon. But he also, it's, it reminds you why he gave yourself himself to buy your pardon so that your whole body and soul might be presented to God now as his possession. He bought you with his blood so that you would be his and you live life for him. And as you take the bread and dip it in the cup and the service says Christ's blood was shed for you, I want it to remind you not only that Jesus died for your sin, but also now by, by his grace through faith, you have died with him to sin. In that way, taking the celebrating communion is an act of renunciation of sin in itself. It's saying, how can you who died to sin still live in it? You know, I was reminded, seeing you here, Mike, years and years ago, Mike Burbage was teaching, I can't remember if it was junior high or high school, Sunday school, down in Sea Wing, right down there. And you were teaching on Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? I don't know if you're going to remember this illustration, but it stuck with me for like 15 years since you gave it. It's a little junior high, but bear with me, it's powerful. He said, living in sin is like drinking from a toilet. He said, so now that you know what a toilet is for, why would you still drink from it? 
Every junior high or high school, whoever's in the room, totally got the point. In first service, it was like dead silent. I'm like, I shouldn't have used that illustration. And Jan Buck came after her and she's like, that's exactly it. <laughs> she goes, I have to tell myself that all the time because I, I forget so quickly that running back to my sin is like drinking from a toilet. Why would I ever want to go back to that again? And as you take the bread and, the, and, and, and drink from the cup this morning, let it remind you that not only Jesus died for your sin, but you've died with him to that sin. So let's not live in it. So if you're a server, would you come forward? Now, for those of you who are clock lookers, we are going to go over a couple of minutes, and it's just okay. <laughs> We're on baseball rules here, not football rules. <laughs> there is no clock. If you are trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin this morning, you're not clinging to sin and unrepentance, then you are welcome. We invite you to come forward and to celebrate this grace in which you stand. Um, if there's sin this morning that you are not willing to turn from, as we bowed and prayed, you're, you're tug-of-warring it with God. I would urge you this morning to renounce it, to tell someone else, even come forward with some of our prayer team later and invite someone else in on it to, to pray with you to, that you would renounce that sin and then come forward and celebrate the grace that's yours through Christ. If not, if that's not where you're at, I would encourage you to just refrain from coming forward and taking this meal and to just w watch and pray and ask God, God, would you soften my heart, change my heart? As we're finished and stand for the closing song, like I said, our prayer team would be up there. They'd love to pray with you for anything. So here's what Paul said himself. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's do that now. Come when you're ready.